Welcome to Horses for Future. Horse people can make a difference in the climate change crisis. Together, we're learning how. My name is Alexandra Kurland. I'm the author of The Click That Teaches, a step-by-step guide in pictures, and many other books and DVDs on clicker training. But this podcast is not about training horses. Instead, we're learning how horse people can make a difference for the environment. The idea is a simple one. Our horses need pasture. So horse people have land. And we need healthy pastures for our horses. Becoming better stewards of the land that's under our care becomes a win-win-win situation. It's good for our horses, good for us, and good for the planet. Individually, collectively, we can make a difference. That's a great concept. But how do we actually go about creating healthy, functional, biodiverse habitats on our land? Over the past year, I've been exploring this question through this Horses for Future podcast. One of the most hopeful answers I've found comes from the work of Dr. Doug Tallamy. He has launched, in his words, a grassroots call to action to restore biodiversity and ecosystem function by planting native plants and creating new ecological networks. It is the largest cooperative conservation project ever conceived or attempted. The goal is 20 million acres of native plantings in the U.S. That represents approximately half of the green lawns of privately owned properties. Dr. Tallamy's goal sounds impossible. Half the green lawns given back to native plantings? But I know from training that you never begin with your goal. Instead, you work towards it step by step in small approximations. Here's how it works. My small patch of land becomes a haven of biodiversity. It inspires my neighbor first to avoid mowing down the milkweeds to encourage monarch butterflies, and then bit by bit to make changes that allow more native species to thrive. Our patches join up, wildlife corridors expand, individually, collectively, we begin to make a difference. I've begun what is going to be an extended series in which I will be learning how to create what Dr. Tallamy has called a homegrown national park. My guide in this work is Coralie Palmer. Coralie is a biologist, She's a director of the Indiana Wildlife Federation, and she's on the council of the Indiana Native Plant Society. In previous episodes, we presented an overview of Dr. Tallamy's work. Why is biodiversity important, and what can we do to help create more functionally sustainable habitats? We began with a broad brush overview. Now we are looking in more detail at his work. Last week, Coralie introduced a key element in Tallamy's proposal, shrinking the lawn. And we ended with this question. If I were walking through a suburban neighborhood where some of these changes were being implemented, where there were more native plantings, what would I see? That's the question that we'll be starting with in this episode. We can all kind of visualize suburban house with its typical yard out in front and there's usually 
foundation plantings around the house. But most of what we would see if we were walking past that house, what we would for the most part see would be a green, well-kept, neatly mowed lawn with maybe a, a flower bed somewhere along the driveway or at the front of the house. So if we're looking at that basic blueprint and then we are waving a magic wand and we are looking at this house now and we are seeing a homegrown national park, what would be some of the changes? And of course, this is going to vary if, if we're looking at talking about somebody who lives in Arizona. That's going to be a very different answer from somebody who's, who lives where you live in Indiana or where I live in New York State. But let's, let's not take the Arizona example yet. We'll get to Arizona. We'll get to, we'll get to Utah, Southern California, all the rest of it. But let's start with what we're more familiar with, which is a more temperate climate with sufficient rainfall to support a lawn without massive irrigation. Yeah. So what would be some of the changes as I'm walking, if I'm walking, I wouldn't be walking my dog. I might be walking my goat because <laughs> I don't have a dog, but I do have goats. So as I'm walking okay. one of the goats yeah. past, past that would that would create quite a stir in the in the from the neighbors. When was, yeah. They thought it was odd enough that I had panda hair when she was in training. If I'd be walking down the street with this miniature horse, people would come streaming out. Is that a horse? Like, yes, yes, it is. So if I walk oh. down, if I walk down the road with one of my elegant cashmere goats, what people would say, they'd be horrified, is what that would happen. So, so, but in any event, my goats and I are walking along the road. Yeah. I have told them that they're not to eat the homegrown national park unless they're invited in. What would we, what would they see? What would we see? So there's a huge amount of flexibility here because you can have any style of planting that you want to in terms of how you design your garden, the native plants. But the diff one of the main differences would be in the species, in the actual plants and the actual species that you see. When we're in our homegrown national park, we hope to see that as half or smaller of, of the lawn. But what we'll typically see is the majority of introduced species. So you'll see kind of introduced plants and you know, things like roses or um Euonymus, the bird. yes. Yeah. Um, and we get, uh, you know, a lot of hydrangeas and things like, although we do have native hydrangeas, but a lot of cultivated varieties. What we would ideally see up in the Hungary National Park kind of garden is you'd, you'd have a, a small area if, if you still wanted some of, of managed uh, lawn, although hopefully very, a very small area. You, The trees and um, shrubs you would see would be North American natives. Uh, or native to your area, to your ecoregion. And then ideally at least 70% of the plants would be native to your area, would, would be from there, would be originate from the area. Um, and there's the, again a huge variety. So in Indiana where we are, we have some wonderful, you know, obviously little things like the echinaceas that people associate and Joe Pie weeds and kind of wonderful uh, bright summer uh, summer blooms but if you're in a shaded area or a woody area we have some incredible little spring ephemerals like um neutriliums and um, dragon and very extraordinary species we have native orchids which people don't think that 
we have we have um, even in in the Midwest we have lots of species of native orchids. And one of the biggest differences you would probably notice is the the life that would be buzzing around that garden. I know when I go out into my native plant beds, which are they've been in for several years now, so they're quite mature and very large, kind of wonderful large plants. It's every everywhere you look is literally buzzing with uh, with insect life. You know, it's, just, it's, it's fascinating and you spend hours just staring at, at one small pit and seeing so much life there. And then the other difference is, you know, in the management, which we'll come to hopefully in later episodes, there's no need to be so tidy. I mean, some people like the tidy looking, that's fine, but things like the, the leaves, we, you know, there's a big campaign now with the Zaxby Society to leave the leaves because that provides a huge amount of habitat. There's you know, people will spend a lot of time raking the leaves away and bagging them up and sending the you know the, the town will send a, a you know a truck to collect them from the side of the road. You are actually then destroying a huge amount of the habitat by taking those away. So it would be wonderful to see sensitivity or, or ecological awareness in how we manage the landscape as well. When we are talking about the plants that we have that we're putting in the native plants. So as you say, it will vary from region to region in the US. But one pattern is clear across across really the entire country is that there seem to be a few um, what we call keystone genera that are disproportionately important in terms of their ecosystem function. And what um, would be wonderful to see and what we can hope to encourage is a combination of these keystone genera and plus a diversity of planting. So we, we want a high diversity of planting in order to support the most diverse ecosystem, the most diverse insect populations and wildlife populations. But we also, among those, really important if we can put some of these keystone genera, the, the, these few plants that kind of go above and beyond in terms of ecosystem function. So when we talk of um, keystone genera, so a genus, it's a level of classification, a kind of a level of biological classification. And the keystone is, it comes from the idea of like a, an arch. You know, if you take away the keystone, it, it, the whole thing crumbles. <laughs> um, it gets collapses. So um, when we talk about keystone genera, there are a few genera that seem to be the foundations, uh, the absolute kind of foundation of food webs and food chains. And it's a very recent paper. It was just November this year published, and it was uh, Dr. Doug Tony and Desiree Narango. And I'm sorry because I don't have the name of the other, um, the other author on that paper. And they found that I think it was just 14% of local plant genera support more than 90% of Lepidoptera that butterflies and moths diversity. And that they, those 14% of plant genera serve as keystone plants throughout the US. So while the actual species will differ in terms of yes. where you are in the US, it looks like there are a few. And those that they, they, this paper, um, which we could put a link to on the, on the notes. So Quercus, which are oaks, are the number one. They are, they are so above everything else. And then the other ones in their list were, were salix, which are the willows, um, prunus, which are kind of cherries, plums, and peaches, pinus, which are the pines, um, populus, which are the poplars, aspens, and cottonwoods. So those five genera were 
the most important genera of woody plants. So let's let's say those again. Because, okay. Uh, yes. People may have so the first one absolutely are are oaks, and I would Dr. Talley yes. was his statistics on the oaks are just staggering. But what is it? Like five hundred and twenty-three species of insects are supported by oak trees. Right. And, yeah. and that, that is important because these are species, these are insects that produce caterpillars. And the caterpillars are these nice, soft, easily digested little packets of energy that the birds need to raise their, right. their young. So without caterpillars, you don't have birds. Right. Yes, absolutely. It's just that simple. So, I mean, it's, it's that grim. But it's that it's that simple, which also means that you, you're not going to be overrun by caterpillars because the birds are going to be swooping in to consume them. So it's not yes. so. Oh, I yeah, don't want absolutely. an <laughs> crawling with crawling with insects. Ugh. You know, it's not that at all. It's no. oh, you know, I love watching the birds, and so I'm going to plant an oak tree, and and unless I actively go out and start turning the leaves upside down because I gleefully want to see these amazing insects. I'm not good, even going to be aware yeah. that, that they're out there. One pair of chickadees will need either six to thousand, six to nine thousand caterpillars to raise one clutch of, of, of young. Yeah, and these these numbers bear repeating: six to nine thousand. That is a busy, busy parent. Six to nine thousand yes. <laughs> caterpillars for one clutch of chickadees. And that's why these plants are so, so important. Right. So the oak trees are hugely important in this. They are. So, yeah, so the oak trees are number one. And that's got to be especially important because we've lost our chestnuts. We've lost the elm trees. Right. Yeah, and the ash are... So the oak might not have had to be the heavy lifter in times past, but we have lost these great giants of yeah. what was the original forest. So the oak right. tree is a keystone species. Then it was prunus. And, and this is just looking at, at left up yes. of um, butterflies and muscle caterpillars. But the next one was salix, which is salix, um, the yes. willows. But now, so the willows, they, they don't mean the giant weeping willow, which comes from China. Or, or is it okay to have... So again, with all of these, we're just looking at yes. the native species of these. So the native, um, you know, the native oaks and the native willows. So then prunus was the next one, which is cherries, plums, peaches, and they're all, they're all within that genus. Pinus, which is the pines, and again, all the you know native, the native ones. And depending on where you are in the country, that actual species might differ, but that genus. Populus was the next, which are poplars, aspens, and cottonwoods. Those are the top five. The next five were betula, which is the birches, vaccinium, which are cranberries and blueberries, yes, uh, which are nice yes. too, um, carrier, which are the hickories, acer, which are maples, and malus, which are apples and crab apples. So a lot of these genus have ones that are very enjoyable yes. for us as well. Yes, those were the top 10 in this um, very recent research paper that were kind of the, the keystone genera so um, and those were the woody plants they are also uh, they did um they also going to um i don't 
believe it's been published yet. I couldn't find it on the uh, on the paper. They're going to release the data for the keystone genera for the herbaceous plants. I will report on when we when we get the data. And so the the kind of the best thing that we can do, the most important thing, is to have a diversity of, of plantings, have as a kind of a, as big a diversity as we can, but to include some of the species from within those genera. Have an oak or a um, have a native oak or have a native plum or cherry or if you can or several as many as you can yes. fit. <laughs> um, but that that is the kind of the best way that's going to be the, the most effective way to support as much diversity as possible um, is to include species from the genera. That really gives you a lot to choose from and a lot of different height yes. and size. So you might not have room for an oak tree in your front garden, and especially right. not if you have yes. you know, like electrical wires and so on. If the yeah. power lines are not buried, you don't want to plant a tree that's going to need to be chopped to bits by the clearing for the right. power lines. So you might not have room for an oak tree or a maple or you know something of that size, but some of these others are smaller trees. Right, absolutely. Yeah, or, or if you want the variety in height. So we're walking past this suburban yeah. house. What we might see then would be along the front of the house that instead of just it being solid grass from the road to the to the house that perhaps they've made a, a nice border that's maybe five, six feet in from the from the road so that there's uh, room for the snowdrifts, etc. And they've created a, a nice border. And in that border, they have planted maybe uh, something from the prunus, so a plum, a cherry, uh, which gives you some spring blooms, which would be very nice. Right. And then underneath that, as those trees are growing and maturing, then they'll have some of the herbaceous flowers that'll draw in the pollinators. Absolutely, yeah. You're right. And so I think, you know, ideally you're as much diversity as possible in and those doing those two things will maximize conservation benefits of, of, of your planting. For people who are looking and, and thinking this is great and they want to do this and finding out which, you know, which specific ones they can um, use in their area. So there are a number of places people can really easily go to to get some great advice for their area in Indiana and so the Indiana Native Plant Society has an excellent website and we're actually doing a digital education series we're in the middle of that now and we'll be doing videos on like how to plan and how to plant for some of these native plants and we're we're hoping to have actual uh, we're going to put some garden designs on there that you could either just copy if you you know just yeah. literally take the plan and put it in your own garden or you can you know adapt it to your area and what we try and do when we're advising or helping people is look at your property of your land and see what kind of we want to really kind of emulate then what would be a nat what would be a natural plant community so if you know if you're in a woodland or a you know if you're by water's edge or if you're in a wetland or a, a prairie area and then we have on the indiana initial plant society website they have wonderful recommendations for what species would work in those various plant communities and we try and kind of emulate what would what would be a, a natural plant community growing in those areas and so obviously if you're in indiana or anywhere in the midwest really because state borders are kind of 
biologically it's slightly yes. arbitrary so it's yeah. more done on region rather than state you yeah. have to necessarily sit within your state but in your in your region in the in the united states and the north american native plant society also has a fantastic resource on their website they have links they have a page with native plant societies through i i don't know if it's every state but it's certainly most of the states in the u.s and it has links to their individual websites and they often have uh, mo- many of those will have fantastic you know, recommendations and examples and photographs of how people have landscaped with native plants in your specific area, which is really fun. If I decide, you know, I want to garden with native plants, is it a bit of a case of if you build it, they will come, that expression? You know, if I yes. if I leave an area alone, will the native plants just come in or do I need to actively work at bringing them in? This is a great question, which means, of course, that I'm going to stop here and make you wait until next time. This begins a discussion of invasive species, which opens up a whole new line of discussion. Before I close, I have to share a wonderful surprise I had recently at my house. It was the day after the massive snowstorm that left my area with about three feet of snow. During snowstorms, I always stay at the barn. If I'm going to get stranded by impassable roads, I want to be sure I'm at the barn so I can look after the horses. So I didn't get to the house until the following day. Of course, my driveway was buried, so I pulled up in front of the house. As I got out of the car, I heard a scream and saw a tussle of fur just inside the deer fencing that surrounds a favorite evergreen. Of course, I had to check out what was going on. It took me a moment to realize what I was seeing. A mink was after a rabbit that was easily twice his size. I startled them both as I got out of my car, so the rabbit escaped, and the mink disappeared into a hole in the snow, but then he resurfaced several times from his tunnel, so I could get a really good look and even get some pictures. I have never seen a mink before at my house, and only very rarely in the wild in very remote parts of the state. So what a surprise. Already, my homegrown national park is attracting some really interesting residents. I'm sure the rabbits and other small animals are wishing he would move on, but I suspect this mink will be staying the winter. That's exciting for me, but less so for the animals he preys on. If you have sightings of interesting native returnees to your own homegrown national parks, do share them on the Horses for Future Facebook group. The more we share, the more we can inspire, and the more acreage we can add to the map of homegrown national parks on Dr. Tallamy's website. So get out your binoculars and your cameras, everyone. I'm looking forward to hearing about all the different sightings. Have a wonderful and safe holiday. Merry Christmas and Happy New Year. I'm sure we are all looking forward to wishing in 2021. And do remember, not only can horse people make a difference, we need to make a difference. Let's make 2021 a year of homegrown national parks. (laughs) 